All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. I am super happy this week to welcome Mr. Jacob Shepes. Is that how you say it? Shepes, Shepes. I've been, uh, yeah, used to dealing with the Shepes for a long time, so close enough, Abel. <laughs> so what do you say, Skepes? Yeah, correct. Okay, well, I mean, you deserve to be called on your own name, so. <laughs> uh, so maybe just give a like a 30 to 120-second intro as to your background, what you do, what is your passion, what is your mission, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, obviously, my name is Jacob Skepis, not Shepis. Um, I'm a personal trainer from Melbourne, Australia. I own two uh, personal training facilities in Melbourne um, where we have 15 coaches who try to apply the science and evidence to our clients uh, to help them achieve their goals. We primarily work with um, physique athletes, body composition goals, and powerlifters. I've uh, been in the industry since 2010, um, so seven years now. I'm a competitive bodybuilder myself, dabbled in some powerlifting, and yeah, really, really passionate about delivering the best content um, to not only my clients, but our followers to, yeah, hopefully bridge the gap between the scientific community and the lay to, you know, better help people achieve their goals. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. First and foremost, I'm a coach. Um, you know, a lot of people see me, I guess, as a businessman, but I don't know a thing, the first thing about business, but I do uh, pride myself on being able to coach people and I guess subsequently by doing that, you know, the business has taken care of itself. So yeah, man, that's what I do. I'm passionate about lifting um, and yeah, I love all things science. So that's me in a nutshell. Okay, so maybe I've been living under a rock up until now, but what is the reason behind people having that perception about you that you're primarily a businessman? Um, I guess just running two personal training studios, people uh, get the idea that I have a master business plan or business model um, when in reality, you know, I just know how to coach people and our coaches do an excellent job at you know, applying the scientific principles of exercise, nutrition to our clients. So, yeah, I guess some people could uh, be misinformed or at least, you know, view things differently purely based on, you know, how they see me on a surface level having a couple of facilities. But, yeah. All right, gotcha. So uh, do you also work with people online? Um, yeah, I do. I have about 40 online clients as well. So I've got quite a busy schedule from my face-to-face clients. I've got about 30 athletes that I work with face-to-face and my, obviously my 40 online clients um, all around the world. So I'm pretty fortunate. I've got some awesome clientele in like England, Mexico, America, New Zealand, um, Indonesia. So yeah, working with people all around the world, man. It's pretty cool. Right. And did did the online part of the the story come about when you started having success with people in person and then it picked up from there or how did that come about? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess it was just a natural uh, evolution from being a personal trainer. Um, I never set out to be an online coach. I think I think that's where a lot of people make the mistake is they try to be an online coach before they actually know how to train people. So I've been training people for a good four or five years prior to uh, even dabbling uh, with working 
online. Um, I just had a few inquiries from people, started working with them, and then I guess as the JPS brand or you know our online presence uh, increased, um, yeah, I started getting a lot of inquiries from people from all sorts of different places. Yeah, right. Uh, one thought that I have on that is anybody who has ever tried training someone in person, even if it was just something like helping a friend through a workout and teaching them some new movements and giving the instructions in a in-person setting, many people might find it surprisingly challenging. I certainly did. And um, I think, I mean, online businesses and uh, working with people online, working from home, all that kind of stuff, that obviously is an attractive proposition for a lot of people to begin with. But especially with this kind of stuff, I think many people are so inclined to jump the gun on the online side of things uh, as opposed to doing it in person first because that allows them to stay within their comfort zone a little bit longer because they, they don't it doesn't have that extra element of scary challenge that an in-person setting might have. Did, did you ever get the same feeling when looking across the board and seeing what other coaches do? It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I completely agree. And I was having this conversation with a colleague the other day and he saw me flapping about uh, in front of my laptop whilst I was got call with one of my clients uh, in England. And I was trying to demonstrate exercises and teach lumbar pelvic control, um, you know, through the squat and what we were trying to achieve with, you know, a number of different exercises. And I find it extremely frustrating uh, as a coach who primarily works face-to-face, uh, not being able to appropriately correct form and guide my clients through specific movements and cues and so forth uh, online. Um, I do agree that being able to write a program and, you know, send a couple of spreadsheets sheets uh, isn't very arduous at all. Um, and being able to coach somebody face-to-face guide them through a session, you know, with their technique and obviously deal with all the other things that arise during a one-on-one face-to-face session uh, is a lot more, um, yeah, psychologically taxing on the trainer um, and will teach you a whole of lot more than programming for someone online. And I think that's where the big difference lies. There's a difference between coaching and programming, but there are a lot of good online coaches. Not to say that uh, all online coaches just send out spreadsheets and so forth, but there is a huge difference. And I think for some people, uh, face-to-face coaching is a prerequisite before moving online. Um, but obviously, if you've got a good foundational understanding of how to train, been doing it for a while, online coaching is obviously a much more uh, cost-effective alternative and suits a lot of people just fine, especially if they don't need that, you know, that one-on-one touch. Right. So speaking still on the coaching side of things, um, obviously, as a, as a trainer or coach, you will do a lot of things. You will teach people different movement patterns. Potentially, you will guide them through dieting. There's a uh, behavior change or psychological element to all of this. Um, what do you personally find the most fulfilling or the most challenging uh, in your job as a as a coach? That's a good question. I guess it depends on the person. So I work with quite a few, um, obviously, physique athletes like bodybuilders, um, fitness models, um, all the rest of it. But I also work with powerlifters. So I guess depending on the the goal that the person has. 
that's going to really dictate where I get most excited. For example, if I have a powerlifter, um, I'm far more excited to watch their numbers in the gym climb. Um, and the training is where, you know, the crux of the work gets done, so to speak. Now, that's not to say that training isn't important for bodybuilders, but obviously the diet becomes, you know, far more uh, important in a contest prep, and that's really where I, you know, tend to find myself um, getting excited about things uh, because we can see the changes in their body fat percentages, uh, how they're looking, and so on and so forth. But in terms of what challenges me the most, like all coaches would be, you know, adherence, um, you know, to the plan, especially when we're discussing diet. So that's one area that can be frustrating as a coach, especially if you get those clients who may not be adhering or complying to the diet as you'd like. Troubleshooting that is always challenging. Um, in terms of powerlifting, there's a lot of uh, areas that can challenge a coach there. Um, or even just training people in general, such as, you know, managing fatigue, especially if you're not working with world-class athletes and you've got nine-to-fivers whose sleep schedule, work schedule, you know, daily stresses are changing, um, you know, quite frequently and drastically. That can obviously influence the programming side of things. So that's, you know, one big challenge I have, especially with amateur athletes. Um but yeah, they would be the two biggest challenges from a nutrition and training standpoint. My enthusiasm will align with what's going to drive their outcome, so to speak. Right. So speaking of challenges, uh, obviously, whenever you have a goal, whether it's uh, business or body composition, athletic goals, anything like that, there's all there are always bumps in the road. And uh, I would be curious that when you look at your journey, uh, obviously you're also a body composition aware person and a businessman yourself. So when you look at back at your journey, what were some of the big challenges that you had to overcome that has taught you a lot? The biggest challenges would be understanding that there is no perfect uh, program or diet. I think... That is one of the things that I really struggled with early on in the piece anyway. Um, I was always looking for, for perfection. I'm a perfectionist by nature. I don't like to do things half-assed and, you know, I want to know that what I'm doing is going to yield the best possible outcome. And I really struggled for a long time in, in realizing that whether you eat 1.8 or 1.9 grams of protein really isn't going to make too much of a difference to your, you know, muscle building efforts, for example. And, you know, whether you do three sets of six versus three sets of seven, it's, you know, progression, progressive overload, sorry, over time that really matters, not the specific set and rep scheme that you're performing at any given moment. So understanding those things, um, was probably the biggest challenge for me as an athlete and, you know, as a coach and really understanding and recognizing how nuanced uh, things are and that at, in many cases we can simply do what we think is best and there is no perfect answer. So, yeah, that would be my biggest challenge uh, early on in my training career for sure. Yeah, and, uh, well, first of all, I think that's a really great point and I think that's one of those things that everybody almost – 
uh, over time comes to understand, at least in theory, that maybe it's not worth sweating over those tiny little details. Like everybody kind of intellectually understands that one gram of whatever food on the scale or doing uh, six reps as opposed to seven reps is maybe it's not not going to move the needle all that much. And maybe they would advise someone else to do it. But when it comes to their own progress, they're a lot more emotionally invested into that stuff. Uh, and it, it just becomes a lot harder to actually remain objective. Um, can you recall some specific examples from your own life when you went through stuff like that, that now you kind of look back and have to cringe a little bit at what you were doing? There are a lot of neurotic uh, tendencies that I adopted early on in my training career that I have now uh, put to rest, thank goodness. But one that sticks out for me was back when I thought that meal timing and frequency was the be-all, end-all, and I would literally schedule my meals every two to three hours, and nothing would get in the way of me eating. I remember distinctly opening up a chicken, broccoli uh, container in a lecture um, back when I used to study law, and the entire lecture theater just covered their nose, it stunk, they all looked at me and I was like, oh, I don't give a shit because, you know, I'm making games and you all aren't, you don't get it. Um, and that was one behavior that, you know, I was overly fixated on and really, again, played a very small role in my body composition efforts, but it was one that caused me a lot of heartache, a lot of stress, and I'm extremely glad to have, you know, better understood the science behind uh, those variables within our nutrition now because I have a much more flexible and realistic uh, meal schedule, that's for sure. Yes, and, and what people don't understand uh, until they have actually gone through some of these experiences is that it's not like you just come to the realization of, okay, maybe this particular behavior is not necessary and then from that point onwards, you're just purged from all the unnecessary neuroses it kind of takes a, almost like a detox period when your mind actually learns to relax over certain things. And first, you actually have to experience that, okay, this thing was not necessary. Now I have been away from it. And I can see objectively on my body and on my results that, in fact, it does not have a negative impact on what I'm doing. Because up until you do it, you can always kind of convince yourself that what you're doing is necessary to get your results. Or even if you're not satisfied with your results, you can still rationalize that if you were not doing a lot of the neurotic things that you are currently doing, then your results would be lagging behind even more. Yeah, definitely. I agree because it, it is scary and a lot of people do have fear when they're transitioning to something new um, and obviously they're taking the advice of a quote-unquote expert or um, you know somebody that they follow online. I think initially there's a lot of uh, apprehension about doing something differently in fear of losing what they've currently got or what they perceive they have. Um, so it is a progression over time. It wasn't like one day I woke up after reading Alan Aragon's research review and went, oh, well, away with the meal frequency now, let's just eat one meal a day. It was like slowly having four meals a day, then slowly fasting for a little bit longer between meals and then, you know, eating sort of ad lib and, you know, trying to structure my meals around my day. Yeah, it took a number of years. That's Yeah, it wasn't a quick fix overnight. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that, um, for example, one one example I can think of is that back in the day, I used to be a, a low carb zealot, and uh, I was I was invested in all kinds of fads uh, when I was early on starting out, and uh, one of those things was the whole carb backloading thing. And, uh, you know, carbs were maybe okay, but certainly not in the morning. And I remember that at some point it started to kind of dawn on me that, okay, maybe this thing is kind of ludicrous. Like, come on, like I cannot have a cup of berries at noon because it's, I can only eat them after 6 p.m. or something. But I remember that once I started having carbs earlier on in the day, because that's just what fit my lifestyle and my preferences, I still had to pretty much stay away intentionally from content that these people put out because I knew that at that point I was still mentally susceptible to to jump back on those bandwagons that I was trying to jump off of. So uh, speaking of uh, dieting and flexibility uh, in mindset and in in, in dieting in general, um, I know that you're associated with 3D Muscle Journey. I know know that you've had them over for a seminar. And I know that um, the progression in terms of dietary approaches and in terms of increased flexibility as you gain more skills and nutritional knowledge is, is a big interest of yours. And flexible dieting being one of the main talking points of recent years, I'm curious if I'm just throwing the term at you, flexible dieting, if it fits your macros, all these kinds of uh, terms, buzzwords, whatever you want to call them, what are some of the first thoughts that come to your mind as of 2017? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And like anything it's just a tool to you know manipulate body composition at the end of the day and with all tools some are better in some instances um and in other circumstances you know we need to use different tools and touching on what you mentioned which was you know helms um model of implementing a flexible diet you know i think that using a true you know flexible diet that is, you know, tracking calories and macros, um, you know, needs to be a stepwise introduction to such a methodology. I don't think that um, a lot of people will simply be able to pick that up from the get-go. And like Eric outlines in, you know, the first and second issue of Mass, um, which is monthly uh, application of sports science, for those of you who don't know, um, you know, there needs to be this stepwise introduction into, you know, nutrition and the education of nutrition. And I think, yeah, firstly, we need to improve our dietary awareness. And that is, we need to be educated about what calories and macros are. You know, we need to prioritize habit and behavior change. And this doesn't necessarily come with, you know, my fitness pal and meticulously tracking calories and macros. Um, it could be a food journal or a meal plan where somebody simply just starts to get an understanding of what they're consuming on a day-to-day basis and where they're over-consuming, where they're under-consuming, um, you know, and what foods they do eat, you know, and then from there um, start to move into more rigid dietary restraint where they can start matching foods to macros, create their own meal plans, and they get a little bit better at, you know, regulating energy intake. And then, you know, flexible dieting, as we commonly know it, IIFYM would be like step three, uh, which is flexible dietary restraint. And that's, you know, freely eating by the numbers, waking up every day um, and just tracking as you go. And, you know, you know what protein is, you know what carbohydrates are, you know how many 
grams of protein or in, you know, 200 gram serving of chicken. Um, and you view your food as macros. And that's where most people try to start when they talk about flexible dieting. They'll read an article online and they'll go, oh, I'll just start tracking my macros, but they don't actually address the underlying issues, you know, with their mindsets. Um, their habits, behaviors, even their lifestyle and their environment, like these things play a key role, as you know, Abel, in how successful we are at dieting. And I think if you just simply try to go to, if it fits your macros without paying attention or at least recognizing some of these factors that could be detrimenting the success of your diet, you're only setting yourself up for failure. So I think there definitely needs to be a stepwise introduction to flexible dieting. Um, I think Eric's model is fantastic in um, being able to clearly uh, conceptualize and break down some, you know, key steps in doing so. And yeah, obviously the final step, as he mentioned, uh, is you know habit-based habit-based eating or you know adaptive, intuitive eating, where you know you're not tracking anymore because. As you and I both know, tracking every single calorie and macro, weighing our food becomes quite uh, tedious over time. So learning how to actually listen to hunger and satiety cues and ingrain those behaviors that we learn through the you know rigid restraint and the flexible restraints um, to help auto-regulate our intake uh, is beneficial. And I, I think dieting as a whole exists on a continuum. I don't think there is an on or off switch or this perfect uh, plan. I think it needs to be adapted over time based on a number of circumstances and people will often shift between tracking calories and macros and, you know, some form of habit-based eating or even a meal plan depending on many factors in their life such as their goals, you know, just their lifestyle circumstances, changes in their relationship, uh, whether they go on holidays all these kind of things. And I think nutrition is very much dynamic in nature, like the human body, like our lifestyles. Um, and the approach we take to nutrition needs to reflect that. Yeah, and I, what I really like about this approach is that it doesn't necessarily points at any one approach as the end goal that everybody should get to because personal preference and your lifestyle I know that a few years ago I thought that I would track macros meticulously for the rest of my life because frankly I was just getting a lot of enjoyment out of it and as of now I'm at a very different place and and actually think that for a lot of people having strict macro tracking as the end goal is just not a reasonable goal if if it is their goal. There is nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't cause them stress and, and they actually enjoy doing it to some extent. Um, but I'm curious for the most part, uh, for most people's general lifestyle, what do you think should be the, the end goal in terms of a sustainable approach to manage energy intake over the long term? Because obviously this has to be a lifestyle. This I can use my own experience, um, you know, to draw on this because I can't speak for everyone, you know, where they should end up with their diet because as you, sure. as you know, we're all different. Um, you know, and I know, um, and I think this was discussed on one of the 3DMJ podcasts, you know, Ian McCarthy is somebody who thrives on, you know, the control element of knowing what he's eating. So he'll probably be somebody uh, who tracks their calories and macros every day for the rest of their life. And, you know, he's extremely analytical and that suits his personality type. So for him, there's probably 
no need to go any further than that. But for somebody like me, um, you know, I found tracking calories, macros to, you know, cause me too much stress, uh, considering, you know, the other things I've got going on in my life, such as, you know, running a business, taking care of my clients, um, you know, I've got a family, I've got two young daughters. Those kind of things uh, take priority to, you know, how many grams of protein I eat per day. So I've used the habits that I learned through flexible dieting, such as, you know, eating three to five servings of protein uh, per day, you know, having 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories, those kind of things, uh, drinking water before and after meals, all those little habits that you learn, um, you know, through flexible dieting to make it successful, um, coming out of it without tracking calories and macros. And I haven't tracked calories and macros for near on 18 months. And, you know, I'm consistently, you know, edging towards improving my physique, whether it's cutting or gaining. And obviously there's only so much you can do, um, you know, that's intuitive and your body will start regulating itself. But for the most part, you know, I know that if I'm eating – um, five serves of protein a day and I'm feeling quite full at my meals and I'm slowly gaining weight, well, I'm going to be at a calorie surplus. You know, I don't need to know the exact calories, but as long as I'm putting enough eggs in the right basket, things will move in the right direction. And I think for a lot of people, that should be the end goal, to have the knowledge and the skills necessary to be able to take control of their diet without relying on numbers. And for me, that's been a huge game changer over the past 12 months, being able to do that. And I know for many people, that is the end goal, to be able to regulate their body weight without a diet, so to speak. So I guess that would be my answers to that question, Abel. Um, I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's perfect. Um, and I'm sure somebody out there has a better explanation to that. Um, but I would say that most people, don't want to be tracking calories macros for the rest of their life so there needs to be a a end goal after that and at this stage i can't see any uh better solution than just having awareness a skill set and knowledge um to take autonomy over their diet so that they can achieve their body composition goals or at least maintain a healthy and you know sustainable body fat percentage that they're comfortable with um, free of the restraints, you know, that we have when we track calories and macros. Yeah, actually, it's interesting, and it, it's something that I just talked about in a recent um, solo uh, podcast episode that I just put out. That I found that for my particular goals, which is in general, I just want to look like a guy who lifts. Um, I don't have incredibly ambitious body composition goals, as, and by that I just mean I don't want to step on a bodybuilding stage or anything like that, but I still want to be like six-pack-ish lean year-round pretty much. And I pretty much found that uh, by not tracking my macros and adopting the right habits and, and skills around nutrition, I basically didn't have to compromise my results at all. In fact, I would say that they improved. In, in terms of body composition, I don't really think I have been in this good of a position uh, ever, pretty much. Um, but I'm curious, what did you find? Did you have to uh, compromise any of your ambitions or body composition goals by taking this approach? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say no to the most part because I'm not trying to chase an extreme. Right. And a, an example that comes to mind is if I'm competing 
uh, in a powerlifting meet where I've got to cut, you know, a certain amount of weight and I know that I can't do that, um, you know, through intuitively adjusting my intake, then I will need to track um, and tracking will produce a far superior result than me trying to rely on my intuition um, and just habits because sometimes that can let us down, as you know. Um, and again, when I compete next year, so I'm jumping back on the bodybuilding stage, there's no way that I'm going to be able to, you know, use a habit-based approach to get to, you know, sub 10% body fat. No way in hell. So I think there's always going to be a transition uh, dependent on goals, and I think this applies to to anyone. If somebody has a goal that they're serious about, sure, they might have the habits and behaviors in place to be able to manage their body weight, but if they want to ensure that they get a specific result, um, they're going to need that data from you know weighing their food, tracking things, tracking body weight, and getting uh, as much information from key variables related to you know manipulating body composition to successfully achieve that end goal. I don't think that we can do all of that with just you know listening to our bodies. Yeah, uh, great points, and I think we actually knocked this uh, topic out of the park pretty well. So what I want to do is throw a couple of rapid fire ish questions to you. Um, basically, I'm just going to throw a couple of buzzwords at you that have been on my mind lately and have been big talking points as of late. And just a f in a few sentences, just give your general thoughts on the topic, uh, if that works. So uh, first thing is a training frequency. In general, each muscle group, each body part, how often should we train them per week? Or assuming that someone's goal is actually body composition. Yeah, for sure. I, again, like all training variables, I think it's largely dependent on a number of factors their training age, gender, you know, leverages, uh, and the specific body part that they're training. But generally speaking, two to four times a week is a good rule of thumb, you know, with smaller uh, muscle groups being able to be trained, you know, at a higher frequency than that. Uh, next thing, training volume. So what kind of metrics do you like to use to track training volume? And in general, uh, how much training volume should people do per muscle group if their goal is body composition? Yeah, the metrics I use, again, like we spoke about earlier, are going to be dependent on whether I'm working with powerlifters or bodybuilders and physique athletes. Powerlifters, I'll usually measure total tonnage on their you know competition-specific lifts, whereas for bodybuilders and physique uh, goals, I'll be measuring number of hard working sets per week. And where do I start people? I'm a big fan of Mike Isretail's model of uh, minimum effective volume, maximum adaptive volume, and maximum recoverable volume. So I usually start somebody with a minimum effective dose uh, to start seeing some progress or elicit uh, adaptation, which is typically around 8 to 12 working sets uh, per week. And yeah, climbing from there. Great, great. Uh, next thing, training intensity. Uh, expressed as a percentage of one RM. If someone's goals is, if someone's goal is body composition, for the most part, uh, in general, what kind of training intensity should they use? Yeah, like all variables, many considerations here. Uh, in terms of where I would start, typically around sixty-five to seventy-five percent of one rep max uh, is where I would start building work capacity, and you know. Obviously, we'll get the morphological changes um, before climbing into higher intensities. Um, but for the bulk, you have between 65, 75%, and you know, touching that 80, 85% at you know, small intervals uh, in different mesocycles. Awesome. 
uh, deloads. So first of all, do you use them? Because some people just use autoregulation. And if you do use them, uh, how do you like to implement them? And how often do you implement them? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a topic that is in hot discussion uh, of late. But again, it's like it's like all these things, depending on goals, uh, training age, and recovery factors. But I very much individualize, you know, how I apply, you know, deload as a fatigue management strategy. Um, but typically, they're either proactive or reactive. Uh, so proactive meaning that they're planned into the training cycle, or reactive um, meaning that when fatigue uh, is too high, we'll just take one and try to eke out as much progress for as long as possible. Uh, for strength-based athletes, I use proactive deloads for the most part, um, you know, working on a three to five uh, to one uh, work to rest ratio. Uh, um, but for physique athletes, I'm typically going to have reactive deloads because we'll be auto-regulating things and try to, yeah, eke out progress for as long as possible. Awesome. And the final thing I want to ask you about is dietary fat and carbohydrates. So in general, what kind of grams per body weight, kilograms or pounds do you like to use or what kind of percentages uh, or proportions do you like to titrate them in into someone's diet? Yeah, so obviously first setting protein. Um, big fan of keeping things simple and starting out with two grams of protein and adjusting from there. Um then I'll usually set dietary fat at around 0.8 to 1.3 grams per kg, and carbohydrates will make up the remainder of calories. But I will add for the most part, unless I have somebody in a contest preparation or, um, you know, who I know has neurotic tendencies and needs to have, have set numbers for their carbohydrates and fat, I typically let people make these up from preference. So long as they're hitting their protein and calories, um, I'm not too fast as long as there's nothing too extreme. They're not under or overeating either macro. What's the minimum amount of dietary fat that you like to set? That if someone's dipping under that, then you go like, okay, let's go a little bit higher than that. That's not cool. Yeah, so uh, for fats, it, it's really dependent um, because a lot of the time we're going to have uh, people in you know contest prep where they're going to have to really – go down towards the nitty-gritty, so to speak, of their fat intake, but no lower than you know 0.5 grams of fat per kg typically. Cool. So uh, let's uh, kind of close this off with some personal slash personal development type of stuff because some of the listeners might be interested in that. So do you have any kind of rituals or habits that you developed over time and you find them to be helpful to operate better and more effectively? Yeah, in terms of rituals, um, I do a lot of really funky stuff. Um, I drink a lot of coffee. Um, that's one ritual that I think a personal trainer needs to quickly adopt if they want to make it. But, um, in, ter- <laughs> but in terms of behaviors, uh, a book I read uh, – when I first got into the industry, which was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, um, and one of the habits was to become a doer, and it really stuck with me uh, for many reasons because, like I mentioned earlier, I'm a perfectionist by nature, and I you know, often get stuck between you know, overthinking things and, like you mentioned, becoming you know, paralyzed by analysis, essentially. Um, so I guess a large part of my small success has been my ability to just be proactive um, and to actually get shit done, so to speak. Um, 
yeah, like I said, a lot of people do get stuck between uh, their intentions and ideals and taking action towards, you know, improving whether it's their practice, their physique, their, you know, finances, their studies, whatever it is. They like the idea of something but often have a hard time acting on that. So, yeah, learning how to switch into gear and get daily tasks done has been, I guess, critical to, you know, my small success. And whether it's podcasts, blogs, programming, all that kind of stuff, I simply, when I think about it, it's like, cool, what do I need to do to get this done? And a mantra that I guess I've followed and I have on my phone and my alarm is to move forward. And that's something that I try to do with my time, no matter what I'm doing. And make every action move me forward so that way I don't get uh, too overwhelmed by the end goal and reaching the destination, I guess, but it keeps me yeah, grounded so that I'm just constantly rolling things forward. And then over time, before you know it, you, you, know, you wake up and things are a lot closer to where you want them to be. Yeah. Uh, it's actually funny that you mentioned action taking. Um, you seem like... Um a naturally driven and motivated person who is, is kind of a go-getter type of guy. Uh, Luke Johnson, I also interviewed him on the show. He also seemed to be uh, one of those guys. I am personally am more of a, a, like I tend to think and dream a lot about things. And uh, sometimes I just forget to actually take action on some of the big ideas that I have. And I kind of developed this rule that I'm trying to adhere to. And so far, it actually works pretty well is that uh, whenever inspiration comes to me, which unfortunately tends to come in the most fucked up random moments, like before falling asleep at like 1 a.m. or something, if then I have the urge to do something or or start working on a project, write up a a transcript or something like that, then I'm just going to get up from bed and start doing it. And it's of course, it's not very good from uh, workout recovery and general... um, healthy lifestyle perspective but it helps with getting shit done so (laughs) so next question is a related one have you tried adopting something that uh, some habit that seemed like a really cool idea maybe you've heard it from some successful person and you felt really inspired to implement it to your own life but then you just had to realize that this shit is just not a good fit and it's it's just not going to work out for my situation and my life I'm very similar to you in that sense, Abel. Um, as you highlighted previously, I'm a bit of a go-getter and have a hard time relaxing and <laughs> stressing less, I guess. And meditation has been something that just has never worked for me, despite uh, a lot of people recommending it um, and the benefits, you know, being quite evident. Um, and something I even uh, prescribe and advise my clients to do, um, which is meditate daily, is something I have never been able to do. Um, again, I think this aligns with my personality type. You know, I want to be doing things that move me forward for the most part, and you know, understanding that I can't sit still and must be doing something to move me forward makes meditating quite difficult for me. So. Yeah, that one didn't work for me. And another one that has never really worked well for me has been trying to follow a clear-cut schedule. Um, you know, I think for the first three or four years of my personal training career, I would sit down, you know, on January 1st and I'd put together this schedule of what my 
week would look like and, you know, how I wanted my days to, you know, fit, so to speak. And it never panned out that way, especially in the personal training uh, industry. And I think that was one ritual or behavior that I soon realized didn't work for me anyway. Yeah, actually, my, mine was the exact same thing. Like, I tried all kinds of scheduling techniques. I tried a weekly schedule, a daily schedule, um, scheduling out like every single minute of my day, every day, structuring every day in advance, Monday to Friday. Like, I would spend half a Sunday to <laughs> create a schedule like that, and it never worked out. That said, I, I did find that scheduling pretty rigidly at the beginning of each day, usually what ended up happening is my day still didn't look like how I planned to make it look like, but it was still a lot more productive than if, if I just didn't plan it at all. So there still is a benefit of scheduling, but uh, there's just a middle ground. It's just no point in trying to be overly structured because it's just probably not going to work out that way. Actually, I didn't even write this down for myself, but uh, would you be able to guide us through a typical day of yours from waking to going to bed? Like everything, lifting weights, eating, working, all of that good stuff. Cool, cool. Well, um, as of the last two years since having uh, my first born child, that has thrown a huge spanner in the mix. So I'm not sure if uh, many of the listeners will be able to relate to this, but I'll, I'll give you an outline as to what my day looks like. So the alarm goes off at four o'clock in the morning. Um, I'll typically get up and jump on my emails, see what's there, get to any uh, un, uh, any emails I haven't replied to and programs that need to be completed. I then head to my pers- one of my personal training facilities um, at about 5 a.m. Um, for my first clients and I'll take uh, sessions from 5 to 9 a.m. most mornings. 9 a.m. I usually come home uh, really briefly to pick up my eldest daughter and take her to daycare most days. Um, once I finish that, I'll, I'll come back home and continue working on various bits and pieces, whether it's creating social content, getting back to emails, other little projects I have till about midday. Then I'll have my first meal of the day um, at about noon, um, which consists of uh, some form of omelette, vegetables, cheese, bread, you name it, it's going to be in there. And then I'll spend about 30 minutes, 40 minutes just chilling out uh, with my fiance currently because she's not at work. And then we typically head back to the gym uh, at around one o'clock and we'll squeeze in a session. And then from there, Three o'clock onwards, I'm in the gym, uh, on the gym floor, coaching my athletes till about seven o'clock. And then seven o'clock most evenings, I will take our personal trainer mentorship program, which is a program we run at one of our facilities where we take uh, budding young personal trainers through a 12-week course on how to improve uh, their knowledge and skill set so they can become better trainers uh, till eight o'clock. Then it's home. Um, once I get home, I'll probably have my second meal for the day, um, which is usually a metric shit ton of calories. Um, it's about 15 to 1500 to 2000 calories. Um, and then I'll usually watch some trash on TV, believe it or not, Abel. That's when I, uh, yeah, just try to unwind and turn the mind off, so to speak. And then I hit the hay with my fiance and 
I'll do some light reading in beds uh, or on my couch, which is typically catching up on podcasts such as yours, uh, Revive Stronger, Mass, um, Alan Aragon's Research Review, um, and James Krieger's Weightology Weekly. So they're my ways of uh, chilling out and getting a bit of downtime. And yeah, we do it all again, and I wouldn't have it any other way. You sound like one hell of a hustler. Uh, <laughs> it's busy, man. It's busy, but it's good. It's challenging, and yeah, I think the the meaning of life for me, and obviously this is different for everyone, but for me is to yeah continually push myself and you know try to make something for not only myself but those around me, um, and I try to do that each day. So yeah, it's really rewarding, and I love it. So I'm a happy man. If I'm busy, I'm happy. Cool. Uh, awesome, man. I think you have dropped some real cool insights here. So I guess um, we arrive to my final question, which is um, what kind of resources do you want people to check out or where do you want them to go to check out your stuff and find you? Yeah, so for me, um, I've got quite a few projects in the mix. Um, I'm looking to bring out a host of evidence-based uh, practitioners in 2018, um, we're going to be trying to get out, out 10 to 12 of the most scientific uh, minds in the fitness community out to Australia. So that's a pretty big project I'm working on. Um, in terms of on a personal level, obviously next year, um, you know, I'll be hitting the contest prep. Um, yeah. And that will take up the vast majority of my physical and mental resources, I dare say. Um, and yeah, so that's where things are heading for me. Continually trying to put out good content, I guess, is always a priority of mine. Something I really enjoy doing. And you know, if you guys want to check it out, uh, check JPS uh, Health and Fitness on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. That's where I do the crux of uh, our articles, content, and podcasts. But yeah, man, that's. That's the plan next year. We'll see if it uh, all goes as expected. Obviously, there's going to be a few challenges and bumps in the road, but I'm looking forward to them nonetheless. Awesome. Then it was an honor talking to you, Jacob, and I'm looking forward to more stuff that you're doing. Good luck to your contest prep, the conferences that you're trying to organize, and please keep up the Muscle by Brain podcast because those were freaking awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, man. I really appreciate you asking uh, to have me on. I, I enjoyed the questions. I thought they were, yeah, really good. And I hope my answers uh, hit the mark. All right, guys, Abel here again. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe on YouTube if you watched it there. I come out with new content every week there, whether it's in the form of a podcast episode like this, which I actually aim to do one off every week, or some shorter informational video. Also, if you could just leave a comment and suggest some people that you'd like me to interview or just topics you'd like me to cover, uh, it would be very helpful to know how I can better serve you. And if you listen to it in podcast format, if you could leave a rating on iTunes, it would greatly help out the show, and I would be more than grateful for it. So thanks, guys, for hanging out up until now. Thanks for being here, and see you all next week.